and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back. First-time listeners, thanks so much for finding the show. Uh, regular supporters, always so grateful to you guys for keeping Counterpunch going. That fun drive was... Uh, well, it was interesting, and it was long, and uh, kind of sucks, but hey, that's what happens when you do independent media, and you're not actually beholden to all those corporate interests, and you're not actually getting some conspiracoid check from George Soros or whatever the right thinks uh, left media does. We are actually independent, and we do depend on you guys, and so it's so appreciated. And uh, if you're not yet a subscriber to Counterpunch, in particular the print magazine, please consider doing that. It's a great way to support Counterpunch, even when we're not in our fund drive. And uh, hey, you get a paper magazine out of that, and frankly, who even does that anymore? So, um, you know, you could also donate through the PayPal. You can pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office, whatever you want to do. Um, I mean, we are seeing attacks on media, and the attacks are coming from numerous directions, not only from the White House, but from corporate controlled entities and so forth. So it's all the more important that we get involved in supporting our media and our spaces on the left. So uh, with that out of the way, I'm very excited to talk to my guest today. I um I've actually, well, I say that I'm excited to talk to my guest all the time, but in fact, in this particular case, I've been looking forward for a number of weeks, and anybody who's following me on Facebook knows that I posted about this book like two weeks ago, uh, talking about, I think, how important it is and how important this conversation is going to be. So uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome onto the show Bradley Hart. Um, Bradley is the author of the absolutely critical new book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. States. And just a little bit about Bradley. He is an assistant professor at Cal State University, Fresno. He's the author of, obviously, the book I just mentioned and the previous book, George Pitt Rivers and the Nazis, as well as the co-author of The Global 1920s, Politics, Economics, and Society. So much to discuss. Bradley, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for that very kind introduction. I hope I live up to the expectations here. Well, we shall see, won't we? <laughs> so no I'm kidding of course uh it it is great and the book uh I mean it it not only does it live up to expectations it's just it's so critical right now I think given everything that's going on given what we're you know the, the I guess you could say the history that we're living through so I guess we'll just kind of start there can you tell me a little bit about the book and specifically the genesis of this book. When did this begin? What drove you to write it? And how has it evolved into this final product? Well, I think you're absolutely right to say this is an important book. And this book turned out to be a little more timely than I had originally expected. I actually started working on this project in late 2014, early 2015. And when I first started talking to people about the idea that I had, the response was sort of, you know, why do you want to work on this? This is kind of strange. Who really wants to read a book about these obscure folks from the 1930s? This is sort of forgotten about stuff, and it should probably stay forgotten. So as, as time went on, of course, and we saw the rise, I think, in a, in a lot of ways, um, or, or a new renaissance, let's say, of the far right, this book became more and more relevant. More and more people started taking an interest in it. And then, of course, with the 2016 election and all of the shenanigans we saw surrounding that, this book became very, very timely indeed. And so I think this is an important book, and I'm really enjoying talking to people about uh, the findings in this book. I think they are really important. And I think this is also a part of American history that we have forgotten about. And I think that's actually really frightening in a lot of ways. 
There's no doubt about that. And, and, and frightening, I think, is an important word. But it's also, you know, I think illuminating because it's very easy to separate ourselves and our history from that of the Nazis and from that of fascism in general. I mean, obviously, the U.S. has its own unique history, uh, you know, that of the far right and Jim Crow and slavery and all of those things. But fascism, we typically think of as this sort of European phenomenon. But in reading your book, it's obvious that, A, that's not exactly true, and B, that the history seems to have been almost erased. So tell us a little bit about, you know, let's say how American this fascism really was in the 1930s. Well, that's absolutely correct. I was actually listening to some uh, right-leaning talk radio earlier today just to sort of see what was going on, and they were actually talking about fascism in a a very negative way, of course, because fascism has become a buzzword for evil in this country, and for very good reasons. I don't think anyone would dispute that, and it's gratifying to see that the contemporary right is at least saying that. But this is the disturbing thing that comes across in this book, is that fascism was fundamentally a European phenomenon, but it also had a huge number of adherents in this country as well. And actually, there were adherents in Latin America. I talk about the Mexican fascist movement um, really in passing this book, but that, there's fascinating history there too. Um, but what's really disturbing is that in the er- mid-1930s, Fascism became Americanized, uh, and it became Americanized because there were fascist leaders who began combining the symbols of Nazism, combining the actual swastika, combining Italian fascist symbolism with the American flag, and making the argument that, in fact, fascism and national socialism were not only compatible with American values and American ideals, but were actually a better way of preserving them than a democratic system. And to cite just one example of, of how frightening this rhetoric became, in 1939, the German-American Bund, which is one of these very large-scale groups, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, um, more than 100,000 members across the country, they actually hold a George Washington birthday party at Madison Square Garden that becomes a violent confrontation between the police, counter-protesters, and, and their own supporters, who are in some cases armed. Um, but one of the most provocative things they say in this rally is that if George Washington were alive today, he would be a Nazi. And so it's trying to combine these ideas of Americanism and American ideals with the sort of sheer power politics and and the appeal of fascism in this period. Indeed, and, and it really did have a tremendous appeal for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's obvious, I think it's probably self-evident to everybody listening to us that, you know, the, the economic situation in this country in the 1930s and how that would breed this sort of ideology. But I think that one of the things that the book really illustrates is that it goes so far beyond just the economic circumstances and climate as if this was just a purely natural and organic development. And in fact, I think one of the really interesting findings in this book is that it is this bizarre sort of combination of a natural outgrowth of American history and American politics, but also something that was very deliberately, uh, if not orchestrated, then certainly managed and manufactured. Absolutely. I think one thing that we forget today is that fascism tells what was at the time, and in some ways we could argue still is, a very tempting story. So if you think about the, the basic historical story of fascism in every country, it goes something along the lines of this. It always starts out with an idealized former past. Um, in the German case, this is the sort of Germany in the Roman period where they defeat the Roman legions, maintain their independence. For Mussolini and the Italians, it's all about the ancient Roman Empire. So actually kind of the other side of that historical story, which is always ironic. 
Um, but it always starts out with this mythologized past. And then, according to fascist ideologues, something bad happens. And because there's a fundamentally racist, racist element in all this, normally this involves some form of anti-Semitism or other forms of racial prejudice. But according to that story, this idealized past gets destroyed by whatever these outside groups or whatever degenerate groups have come and influenced it. And so the appeal for fascists is to return to that mythologized previous time, to return to this period that was supposedly great, carefree, in some ways more innocent than the modern world with all its supposed degeneracy. Um, and, and that's what the fascist starts to offer. You can see this fitting in to American ideology as well. Certainly in the 1930s, this period of great economic turmoil and decline. Uh, we should also remember that Franklin Roosevelt is a deeply unpopular president in many parts of the country, in part because in 1940, he runs and wins the unprecedented third term, and then of course goes on to win the fourth as well. Uh, and so the, the fascist appeal does sit, sit very well in some ways with the story that Americans want to tell themselves about their own past. And of course, we have to recognize the implicitly racist parts of that. Of course, we're writing slavery out of the story. We're writing out Jim Crow, which was the predominant social system in the American South in, in the 1930s. Um, but, but the appeal of fascism, I think, is, is, is very clear in some ways. And Jason Stanley's new book talks about this when he looks at the sort of pillars of fascism, I think, very effectively. Um, and I think his book and my book really speak well to each other in, in a lot of senses in trying to unpack why fascism is, in fact, so popular both in Europe and, as I show, in this country. That's exactly right. And uh, for listeners who may have missed that episode, I don't remember offhand, but it's like th maybe three episodes ago, I would highly recommend you check out my conversation with Jason Stanley, um, because it absolutely does, as Bradley was just saying, dovetail with a lot of this. And I just want to note one other book, uh, one that uh, I haven't had on this show, uh, Hitler's American Model uh, by James Whitman, which I think also kind of sort of reinforces some of the points you were making, Bradley, about this, this, this sort of I guess you could say symbiotic sort of ideological uh, relationship between Hitler and the Nazis and the United States of the Jim Crow era that in many ways, in fact, one was influenced by the other and then the other was influenced by the former. And this kind of give and take sort of really comes across in the book, in your book, I mean. Yeah, and Whitman does a really good job in his book, and I do highly recommend that listeners check it out as well. Um, but he talks about influence that the United States had on Nazi Germany. And this is, again, a almost completely unknown story. We're only really now beginning to unpack it, fortunately. But it does appear, and he shows convincingly, that Nazi jurists actually looked at Jim Crow legislation as a model for what they were doing in the Nuremberg Laws and other forms of exclusionary legislation. Um, one thing that Whitman, I, I would argue, doesn't talk enough about, actually, is the influence of eugenics. Um, which I actually did my PhD on. That was kind of the what started me on this journey, looking at all of these symbiotic relationships. But the eugenics movement in the United States was very strong in this period. Uh, California, my home state, actually had the largest eugenics sterilization program in the world up until Hitler takes power. And so the Nazis do look at the United States for these things. Um, but as I show in the book, what's interesting is that they have a very poor understanding of the United States. So Hitler himself doesn't really think the U.S. has any future as a world power because of its racial diversity, actually, because he thinks there are too many supposedly degenerate minorities in the U.S. And, of course, he's completely wrong on that, as the Second World War shows. But he does admire the racial legislation. He admires the legislation in the South. He also admires America's industrial capacity. And this leads him, by extension, to become a great admirer of Henry Ford, uh, who kind of admires Hitler in return, as I show in the book. 
So it's, the Nazis have this very odd view of the United States, and I think this leads them to, to make a number of, of strategic judgments, fortunately, that lead them to never really take advantage of the network of supporters they had in this country. But there's no doubt, I think, from, from the recent scholarship we're talking about, that the Nazis looked to this country for a great deal of inspiration and for, for, for practical advice on how their, how their ideology could be applied. Yeah, and you see it in so many different um, aspects of, of of Nazi thinking and Nazi even strategic planning. I mean, if you look at some of the um, rudimentary ideas that became Lebensraum, right? This idea of German expansion for the purposes of uh, you know living space for the German state and the German people. I mean, this is in in many ways the same kind of settler colonial mentality that really you know quote unquote built America, right? That 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 conquered the West that that caused genocide against the natives and so forth. So the, the parallels are not just ideological ones. I think they're almost sort of historical material ones, too. I think that's right. I mean, as you say, there are certainly similarities between the ideas of Lebensraum and Manifest Destiny in the United States, this idea that the West has been given to the American people by God, and therefore it's their obligation in some ways to settle it. And of course, the byproduct of that, as we know, is is the genocide of, of the Native Americans. Uh, and so there are certainly dissimilarities. And I think that's sort of why fascism does have a sort of natural place in America's vision of itself. It's, it's the idea that America is a unique country, which of course it is in many ways. It has a unique role in the world. But that also sits well with the story that fascists want to tell. And I think that's one reason why in the period that I talk about in the book, this does become such a popular ideology. One of the more frightening pieces of data that I show is from public opinion polling in this era, which was still very rudimentary, but it gives us at least a sense of what people were thinking. Uh, but in the mid-1930s, the Gallup organization asks Americans if they had to live under a non-democratic ideology, would they prefer to live under a fascist regime or a communist regime? Uh, and the and the sort of polling data splits pretty evenly on this, but fascism actually gets the most votes. So fascism actually gets the most support from the American people. It's like 38%. It's because another 30, 30% or so choose communism, and then a bunch of, bunch of people just don't answer the question. Um, but I think this shows that, that fear of communism is, is, number one, very great in this period, but also there's something about fascism that just appeals to people at some base level. No doubt, and that we could, we'll probably will spend some more time talking about that. But I, I do want to kind of address some other points that are brought out in the book that that you go into great detail that I think are critically important. One that you were kind of alluding to a little bit already is this sort of very interesting combination of direct um, intervention, let's say, uh, subversion, espionage, all of these different things that the Nazis had operatives in the United States that were doing, you know, doing propaganda work or, and so forth, although the extent to which it was really effective is, I think, debatable, and you point that out in the book. But there's also this sort of natural affinity. So there really does seem to be a combination of the Germans actively trying to divide the country, divide public opinion, insinuate, uh, you know, Nazi ideology into the national discourse, but also a sort of natural fit, just as you mentioned, where it kind of works its way in organically. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There, there are certainly active measures that the Germans undertake in this period. Uh, they have a, actually an agent on Capitol Hill who is feeding propaganda to U.S. senators, actually, who are then quite receptive to it and in turn help him distribute it to their own constituents. So there is this sort of strange uh, aspect of all this where the Germans are certainly paying 
uh, agents and and certainly there are spies as well that I talk about in the book who are who are involved in all this stuff as well. But there is also this sort of passive aspect of it where the Germans, as I point out in the book, are actually not terribly comfortable with many of the groups that spring up in the United States that want to be like them. The German-American boon I was mentioning a moment ago, Hitler always keeps it to arm's length because he's afraid that they'll create an international incident and end up dragging the U.S. into the war. Um, some of the other even more radical groups I talk about, the Germans don't really know what to make of them. They think that these people might just be crazy. Um, and so, so that's another interesting aspect of this, that the Germans themselves don't really know what to make of their own supporters. Um, but I would argue that the most dangerous people that I talk about in the book are people that the Germans deliberately don't involve themselves with because they think that they'll be more effective left alone. And so one great example of that is Father Charles Coughlin, probably the most famous or infamous radio host of this period. He's a Catholic priest based out of the Detroit area and has what could be the most popular radio program we think in world history. He has nearly 30 million listeners in a country that's half the size of what it is today, roughly. So this is the most popular radio host out there. And he, over the course of the 1930s, sort of moves himself in a very national socialist friendly direction, let's say. And then by 1938-39 is fairly openly embracing Nazism and arguing that the Nazi program in Germany is, is a good idea, should be brought to the United States. Um, and so the Germans, when you look at the intelligence reports surrounding him, um, think that Coughlin's one of their biggest fans, one of their biggest supporters, will be very useful in the event of war, they say. But for that reason, they don't want to get too connected with him. So they try to they don't funnel him money. They don't try to use their influence on Capitol Hill to get him appointed to a, a presidential commission or some sort of official um, congressional position or anything like that, because they're afraid that if that's discovered, he will actually become less effective. And so the Germans are playing a very clever game in this period. And that's something that I think has some, some parallels to today in some ways. Oh, no doubt. And in the second half of the show, we're going to talk a lot more about contemporary issues and how they relate to some of these historical lessons that were kind of just uncovering now, thanks to uh, your research, Bradley. So um, the other the other um, aspect that I, I do want to mention, though, is that it's not simply, as you mentioned, that they, they don't want to directly uh, influence or insinuate themselves with all aspects of U.S. politics. And I think one that was probably the most effective for the purposes of what the Nazi agenda was, that the Nazis really didn't have anything to do with, was isolationism, the America First movement, the development of of that isolationist tendency in this period, probably, I think, best typified by Charles Lindbergh, really the superstar of that movement, uh, you know, potentially could have been the fascist leader of the United States if uh, things had gone differently. And by the way, Philip Roth's Plot Against America is absolute must-read for anybody who's interested in that sort of alternate history. But tell us about the idea of isolationism at this time and how that was utilized by propagandists who, if they maybe directly, maybe indirectly, uh, affinity for the Nazis. Yeah, uh, this is a fascinating aspect of this. And again, it's part of the story that we've almost completely forgotten, because none of us have really grown up in a world that was dominated by isolationism. But in this period, isolationism, I would argue, was the predominant foreign policy view, at least among the American people. And that's a phenomenon that goes back to the earliest days of the American Republic. George Washington, in his farewell address as he leaves at the end of his second term, calls upon Americans to remove themselves from European conflicts that they have really no business in. And in fact, he goes on to say, we just don't, we don't know enough about it. We don't need to get drawn into these ancient, ancient feuds and ancient conflicts. And so this is something that goes back to the earliest days of the Republic. And after World War One, sort of skip ahead, um, there's a huge debate that goes on in the U.S. as to whether we should have, in fact, gotten involved in, in that conflict. And so even though the U.S. is on the winning side of the war, 
I would say the overwhelming political impulse in 1919, 1920 is to withdraw back again and try to undo what Woodrow Wilson has in, in some ways kind of fooled the American people into doing. And we, we forget this as well, but Wilson entering the war was not an entirely above board phenomenon. In fact, he, he pledged not to do that when he was reelected in 1916. When does the, so, when, when so, does the United States ever enter a war in an above board kind of way? <laughs> Well, indeed. I mean, and, and we can talk about Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor is quite an interesting moment, too, because I would argue that Pearl Harbor is really the only reason we get involved in World War II. Um, and I think that's sort of what Lindbergh, um, the, the point that Lindbergh himself makes, actually. So so isolationism is this predominant view. And it's it's not only the view that the U.S. should stay out of wars, but it's the, US, it's the idea that the United States should sort of withdraw into itself. So it should throw up huge tariff walls. It should cut itself off economically from Europe, certainly. Now, when you talk about Latin America, there's a different view there because Americans see Latin America as their, as their backyard, in other words. So Latin America, you can definitely do stuff down there. But you don't want to you don't want to be involved with Europe. You don't want to get drawn into these ancient feuds. And so throughout the 1930s and, and up until Pearl Harbor, you certainly have this overwhelming isolationist impulse. And another aspect of this that we forget is that this was not just one party or the other. There were both Republican and Democratic isolationists. And in fact, the Democrats, as I point out in the book, were in some ways more dangerous because, of course, they were in Franklin Roosevelt's own political party. Um, and so this becomes very awkward very quickly. Um, if, if there is one thing that sort of unites the isolationists, is that it's that most of them come from rural or not very densely populated states. So they come from the upper Midwest, places like North Dakota, Montana. Um, or Midwestern states. And these are states where isolationism or isolationist sentiment does run quite hot. And so when, when Franklin Roosevelt begins trying to nudge the U.S. into aiding the Allies, so aiding Britain and aiding France when they're facing the German onslaught, and almost certainly, incidentally, would have been defeated, the British, um, had, had Roosevelt not been able to do this. But there's a huge backlash against this. And this is something that the Germans quite cleverly take advantage of. They, they clearly see that the isolationists are their best hope of keeping the United States out of the European war. And this is the one motivation they have above all else. By 1938-39, nobody in the German foreign office that I could find, at least, believed that there was ever going to be a fascist revolution in the U.S. They knew that that was just not going to happen here. But what they did believe they could do is keep the U.S. out of the war. And so they're making, they're making a lot of these moves in an effort to influence American domestic politics, to try to tie Franklin Roosevelt's hands, to hopefully elect an isolationist president in 1940, Never happens for very good reasons or very fortunate reasons, I suppose we should say. Um, but this was their primary goal. And what's sort of chilling to think about is just how close they came to that. Again, I would argue that without Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt probably never would have been able to get us fully into the war unless there was some other sort of military incident. I, I think by the time that happens, there's no doubt that we are going to take a role in the conflict. But that role is not going to be direct military aid. I totally, I totally agree, and I've sometimes, uh, like I said earlier, I, you know, this sort of alternate history, man in the high castle kind of fetish that I have, you know, thinking about thinking about what might have what might have been had one little thing gone differently. Now, before we go to the break, um, let me let me Marxist this up a little bit and ask you, um, as I try to always ask when we're talking about historical uh, issues, 
Where's capital in all of this? Because fascism historically, whether talking about the Nazi example, Mussolini, uh, fascism cannot exist without the support and legitimation of major segments of, if not consensus from, capitalism and, and big capital in particular. How does big capital in the United States respond to some of these tendencies that we're seeing? I think Henry Ford is obviously a, a, a good example, but uh, maybe we could go a little bit a little bit deeper. Where is capital in the 1930s? Yeah, this is a great question. So after the Great Depression begins, obviously Wall Street and major corporations are looking for opportunities to claw back the money they've lost. And one of the main areas they see a possibility of doing this is actually in Nazi Germany. And so after World War I, Germany had opened up to outside investment, and both General Motors and Ford, our two biggest automakers, um, had both jumped into the German market, seeing it as a great business opportunity. After Hitler takes power in 1933, many capitalists, if not most of them in the U.S., see this as a positive development. And they primarily see it as positive because Hitler is not Stalin. Uh, you know, Hitler may be a dictator. Everyone sort of recognizes that he may not be the ideal democratic leader, but at least he's not a communist. And Hitler very cleverly plays on this in both the Germany and the U.S., incidentally. He plays German capitalists in a very similar way, telling them, look, sure, you can have a communist revolution if you want, or you can back me. And many industrialists do, in fact, do so. Um, what's also interesting is that Hitler is quite successful in doing this because the German economy starts to take off after he takes power in 1933. Partially, the threat of communist revolution is pretty much gone. Concentration camps make that possible. Um, but also, Hitler reinstitutes conscription. And so unemployment hits zero within three years of him taking power. That's incredibly impressive when the U.S. is still mired in 15 percent unemployment across the country. And so capitalists look at these developments really positively and think that Hitler is almost a model leader in some ways for, for what other leaders should be doing. Um, what's unfortunate about that is was twofold. Number one, it leads to really tragic consequences. Both General Motors and Ford end up employing slave laborers in their factories after the war begins. And obviously a great deal of death and hardship comes from that. But number two, the capitalists who get involved in this stuff don't really understand the nature of fascism. Fascism is not necessarily a capitalist ideology. Remember that Hitler begins consolidating private industries under the control of people like Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, who's notoriously corrupt, but ends up running a huge segment of the economy. And that's because the, the, Hitler and his inner circle see this as necessary. They see this as the only way you're going to produce maximum industrial output to fight a future war. You have to have that level of control. But it's interesting that, that a lot of business people in the United States delude themselves into thinking that Hitler is in some somehow a great capitalist, when in fact we know he's not. Um, and, and so I think what, what's interesting about the business aspect of this, and I do have a whole chapter on this in the book I should mention, um, is that these companies jump in with both feet into the German market, think that Hitler is doing a great job, and then end up essentially destroying themselves in, in Germany because of it. And there's this horrendous irony that by the end of the war, you have factories that were owned essentially by American corporations and their shareholders being bombed by American planes. In some cases, planes being manufactured in the same company's factories in the United States. So it's just an incredible irony and just an incredible tragedy. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay, we're pretty much uh, up against the clock here for a break, so why don't we take a break? Again, we're talking about the book, Hitler's American Friends, The Third Reich Supporters in the United States, Bradley Hart. Very, very important book. I, I recommend it. You can get it anywhere. Books are sold. Uh, we will be right back to talk about, well... 
what else? How this relates to today? Because obviously that's the question we're all kind of wrestling with here. So uh, on the other side of the break, continue the conversation with Bradley Hart. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Bradley Hart. Again, the book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. Couldn't recommend it more highly. Um, So picking up where we left off before the break, uh, uh, well, I guess I'm not really picking off, but uh, we talked a lot about the history of... of, Nazism and and fascism, broadly speaking, and how that is in some ways an inseparable part of, or at least connected to, the very fabric of this country. But now it does seem that we're living through a a, a historical moment. The parallels to what we're talking about here, I think, are fairly obvious, but I do think it's important that we kind of go through this in a, let's say, an academic sort of way. So you're writing this book. You started, I think you said, in 2014. You're writing this book, and as the events are unfolding leading up to 2016, walk us through, I mean, what are you thinking as you're doing this research and you're turning on the news in the evening? Well, getting more and more terrified, I think, is the short answer to that. Um, You know, I, I think what's important to realize, and I think sometimes we have difficulty remembering this, is that this kind of stuff has been on the rise for quite a while. I'm not entirely sure that we can pin 
the rise of, of contemporary forms of fascism necessarily on one particular event or even one individual or even one group of individuals. This stuff has been on the rise for a while. And I've been saying this for years as part of my research. And <laughs> I guess people just started to believe me uh, fairly recently. But this is this is really scary stuff. And what's interesting is that I think a lot of this is a result of the passing of the Second World War generation. We now have very few people who can tell the stories of what they saw liberating the concentration camps. We have very few people who are Holocaust survivors who can go to schools anymore. And and that's something that's really important, I think, to try to tell these stories and, and keep that memory alive. And unfortunately, we are losing those people at an astonishing rate. And within the next few years, we will not have any of them, presumably, anymore to tell those stories. But I think that's why the history becomes so important, is that we have to we have to remember that this stuff has been on the rise for a while. I think it's partially because we're, we have lost that historical memory fairly recently and are continuing to lose it. But I think also, again, there is, some, there is a, a part of the fascist story that appeals to people. And when you don't have that constant example of don't fall into this trap, this is a really dangerous ideology, actually, it leads to huge amounts of pain and destruction. Um, when that's not constantly being reinforced in both society and at the individual level, I think there is um, something just sort of implicitly appealing about this stuff. I think that's a, I think that's such an important point, and I, I want to give a very very short anecdote uh, and and get your take on it, Bradley, because um in twenty in 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 late twenty thirteen no I'm sorry early twenty fourteen uh, the Maidan demonstrations in Ukraine, and I was writing about what was happening there as you saw these Nazis who were re- literally the grandchildren of the Nazi collaborators of the of Bandera and the rest of the Ukrainian nationalists and so forth on the rise and and really getting to the point where they were a real political force. And I was writing about this at the time and uh, published in Counterpunch, I want to say early 2014. And I got an email from a um, Hungarian Marxist philosopher, well-known, who I don't want to name here specifically, but he, he told me something very interesting. He said, don't make the mistake of thinking that this fascism is just you just hear all of a sudden by magic and he said the real truth is that the fascism and the fascists have always been here going back to the end of the war it's the soviet boot on their neck that kept them down and once that boot was gone all of a sudden fascism became fashionable again. And I never really thought about that, but it does kind of relate to what you're saying. I mean, this is a process at least 25, 30 years in the making, and we could probably say it goes back much further than that. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And that's that's a really great point. I think one interesting thing that I've been thinking about actually recently, uh, even more so since the book came out, is what actually happened to these people. So I talk about literally hundreds of thousands of people in the book who belong to these organizations. And of course, it's hard to read into everyone's motives or, or what, why they were part of these things. But just, just to take even the most extremist group, something like the German-American Bund, one of their key activities in the mid-1930s was setting up summer camps for kids. So these were the children of members. They ranged in age from six, seven years old all the way up to teenagers. And the photos from this are just harrowing. I mean, these are kids who are dressed up like the Hitler Youth wearing swastikas, saluting the American flag and the swastika with the familiar fascist salute, um, learning how to speak German and reading Mein Kampf, these children could still be alive. And I'm certainly not insinuating that, that those people are necessarily fascist or part of the far right. But one interesting question, I think, is what happened to these people after the war? And I wonder in how many communities in this country did you have former German-American Boone members living next to Holocaust survivors in later decades? I mean, it's just absolutely chilling and bizarre when you think about this. So this is one aspect that I'd actually like to look in more. And I've been sort of encouraging anyone who might be listening who 
who has a relative or has heard stories about these organizations to actually reach out because I'd like to find out more about what these people thought after the war, what they what they did after the war. Did they go back to living normal lives? Did they um, uh, did they stay involved with sort of extremist politics? That's a really fascinating question. And certainly this came to me specifically after the Charlottesville demonstration, where you saw imagery that honestly I thought I would never see on the streets of America. I mean, people dressed up in SS uniforms, giving the Nazi salute, flying the swastika. This is bizarre stuff. So I think my, my fundamental question is, who are these people? Are they people who have been radicalized on the internet? Are they people who have um, somehow discovered Nazism? Or, or how, how did they get to this point? Right. And and I guess the logical question from there is, are, are literal Nazis in the United States really what is the most frightening aspect that we're seeing? Or is it what I would call the normalization or mainstreaming of fascism? I don't think that anybody, including hardcore Trumpists, would ever look at Nazis and say, yeah, those are, those are my people. I think that that's not really the way that it's working. Rather, I think that Nazis, real neo-Nazis dressed up in SS uniforms like some of these little grouplets that we saw in Charlottesville, they're still more or less fringe elements. It is the mainstreaming of fascist ideology under a different banner, of course, that is the really terrifying aspect of what we're witnessing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think certainly these groups are fringe, and I certainly hope they stay that way. And I hope that we can all agree as a country, you know, we can't agree on much these days, seemingly, but I hope we can all agree that Nazis are bad. You'd think that's a base level of agreement. Um, But I think what, what is troubling is that these people are feeling comfortable enough to come out of hiding. And so for many decades, um, I mean, the American Nazi Party has existed for since essentially the end of the war. George Lincoln Rockwell was his leader for a a number of years and was assassinated. Um, But I mean, I I think what's troubling is that these people don't see the need to hide their identities anymore, to to openly march in these ways and to openly, um, you know, even if you're a Klansman now, they don't even bother to wear the hood in some cases. You know, I saw a special on CNN a couple of months ago of, um, you know, interviewing Klans members in their robes. So that's a little startling to see how how mainstreaming it is going. But I completely agree with your point. I think that it is troubling um, to see these types of ideas coming into the mainstream. And I think actually that's where these types of groups play a really important role, because they are shifting what we call the Overton window. The Overton window being the sort of political science term um, referring to what people will accept as possible outcomes. So, so essentially the range of possibilities that you will accept within a political system. The Overton window has certainly shifted, I think, and I, I'm not sure anyone would deny that since about 2015. Um, there are certainly ideas that are in the mainstream of, of politics or seemingly the mainstream that would have been ridiculed as early as five years ago. And so I think there's no doubt that we are seeing a shift here. And I, and I wonder I was actually having a conversation with someone earlier today. I wonder if if the next step of this is actually broadening the Overton window to the left a little bit. So certainly the increasing discussions of socialism and things like that, that's a little surprising too. And I think that's sort of going hand in hand with what we're seeing on the right as well. Indeed. Uh, um, and I think that shifting the Overton window to the left is really part of what it is we're doing, we're trying to do here. Um, but what I what I wanted to ask you about too is, Tell me, tell me what you what you think. Whether you want to say emotionally or on an intellectual level, what thoughts go through your mind when you see videos of Proud Boys beating people on the streets of New York City? 
Well, horror, really. I mean, and, and again, this is something that we did see in the 1930s. This, this was actually one of the more surprising aspects of researching this book, because this has been completely written out. There was actually a great deal of low-level violence against Jews, against minorities, uh, particularly in big cities. And certainly, one of the, even even more horrifying event, obviously, the, the horrendous shooting in Pittsburgh from, from about a week ago. I mean, this is just absolutely shocking stuff to see. But I think what, what people need to realize, especially listeners to programs like this one, is that this stuff can be combated. It has to be combated. We can't just sit back and allow groups like this to to do these types of things because they will be emboldened in the future. And I think it's really important for us to not only morally denounce these individuals for their for their horrendous ideology and their horrendous acts, but also to encourage and in fact demand that our elected officials do something real about this. It's not enough to simply condemn this violence and say, oh, well, no rational person would do this. Well, of course not. But when you don't take real action against these groups, they do become emboldened in that sense. And I think that we are we are gradually realizing that. Um, that comes across in the book as well. The only reason a lot of these groups got shut down was because the federal government actually investigated them very heavily and up the pressure on them so greatly that they just simply couldn't operate anymore. And I think that's what we really, we really need to start seeing here, too. I, I agree with that, although one of the things that really is troubling is that I think that many, many uh, people within the political establishment, I mean, certainly the Republican Party and even to a large to, to some degree, even in the, the Democratic Party, um, see a danger in addressing that because, A, especially for Republicans, that's a big part of their base they're alienating if they start going after and calling for investigations and all of this stuff, which is going to your point about the shifting of the Overton window and what is acceptable as far as a political base goes. And then, you know, the the second part of that, too, is – and this is the part that I find really kind of interesting to consider – It almost seems that now one of the real obstacles to combating this rising fascism is the deluge of information. It's so difficult to even get people to focus on one particular thing, like a fascist gang romping through the streets of New York or, you know, Charlottesville or whatever the, whatever the issue of the day is. I mean, like I mentioned in a previous episode, we had, we had a a controversy over child separation, literal caging of children that are being stolen from their families. Families, that was like a few weeks ago, and it's almost as if it was disappeared from our, you know, from our memory, down the memory hole, as it were. And I think one of the real dangers that we're facing now is an inability to address this issue because it's just one thing after another after another, literally every single day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and there's a good analogy actually to the book here as well, because one of the key reasons why Hitler's American friends were unable to achieve political power was because they were basically locked out by both political parties. So I cite one example in the book of a sort of far right preacher, a guy named Gerald B. Winrod, who became a radio star. He was sort of a, a minor Father Coughlin type. And in 1938, he actually runs for Senate in the state of Kansas. Uh, and this is the period in which Kansas is shifting pretty far to the right. And in fact, if you want to get a contemporary analogy here, this is the the person who loses this election, the, the incumbent Democrat, is actually the last Democrat to ever represent Kansas in the Senate up until today. So from 1938 to 2018, nobody's overcome what happens in this election, really. Um, and so Winrod is sort of poised to win the GOP nomination, and the National Party steps in and convinces a mainstream Republican to run against him and defeats him. But this is a really scary possibility because Winrod had taken money from the German embassy, we think, certainly had expressed pro-Nazi views. And had that not taken place, you could have ended up with a actual Nazi sympathizer in the U.S. Senate uh, at the key moment, right? He would have been there up until the middle part of the war, as it turns out. 
So I think that's where the role of political parties and responsibility comes in. And I think you make a really good point that what is acceptable from a political base, that's a decision that, that political parties have to make. And I think there's also a role there for especially primary voters. You know, in the 1930s, um, the political parties themselves controlled their nomination process. It was the, the infamous smoke-filled rooms. Uh, and that led to events like like Winrod being forced out of the election or essentially losing the GOP nomination. But today we've passed that on to primary voters. And I think it's really important for, for people who do vote in primaries, and everyone should, to really think hard about the people they're electing in those cases, because that really sets the tone for the general election. I mean, we're actually recording this episode just after the midterm, and I think we saw that in a lot of places where people just were frustrated with the choices they had on the ballot. Well, okay, you should have voted in the primaries then. <laughs> you should have chosen better candidates. So, so I think that's where the sort of political culture aspect of all of this comes in. I think you raise a, a really good point about information as well. Um, I would argue in some ways we live in an era of too much information. We're constantly being deluged by so many different sources, so many different things. And some of this, as we've, as we've learned, is disinformation. It's actually deliberately um, designed to confuse us and confuse our, our political views and stances. And so, so I think that's something that we have to do, do a great deal to combat. And I think that's where you get into questions as well about um, social media regulation, which is going to be, I think, a hot topic on Capitol Hill in the coming Congress with the Democrats taking control. And I think there's going to be some very interesting discussions about how we do um, try to try to control essentially this tide of information that seems to be unceasing. Yeah, there's a lot more to probe there that we just don't have time for in this conversation. But man, I have so many things I want to I want to hit with you. So one thing that you mentioned, you, you already mentioned it. The 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 um the strength of the appeal of Nazism in the 1930s in the Midwest, the upper Midwest, the heartland. And if you were to look at the map of where Nazi sympathies were perhaps the strongest, boy, it does seem to correlate to where uh, Trump is the strongest, doesn't it? There is an interesting correlation. Now, the exception to that would be the South. So the South in this period actually doesn't have a great deal of open pro-Nazi activity. And I would argue that's partially because of the influence of the Ku Klux Klan. So the Klan was very, very powerful in this period, in the upper Midwest, actually, too. But the Klan, from some of, some of the documents I cite, actually got into physical confrontations with some of these groups because they thought they were moving in on their territory. So the South is the exception, but the South is an exceptional place in many ways in American history. So I'm not sure there's, there's, there's any time that the South is sort of typical of the rest of the country. But certainly, I, I think one aspect of that is that the Midwest is actually the center of isolationist sentiment. So if you look at America First, the America First Committee that exists from between 1940 and 41, it's headquartered in Chicago. Most of its members live in that area. Um, there are other chapters across the country. I think something like 45 states have chapters by the end of its existence. But that's really where its stronghold is based. And I cite some interesting intelligence reports in the book, actually from, from British intelligence, who infiltrated America First and, and wrote very extensive reports about its membership and its leadership and things. And the British agents argue, actually, that America First Appeal is to individuals who just don't really understand America's role in the world or don't want to understand, right? They want, they want America to be a self-sufficient country. They don't want their sons to go off and fight in these foreign wars because they don't have any interest really in international politics. They don't really understand or believe that there's any, any role for the U.S. necessarily in the world. And so they, they do want this sort of almost bucolic existence. They want this sort of American dream where you live on your farm and, you know, white picket fences. And we should, certainly shouldn't criticize that as a as an objective. But I think what's troubling about what happened in the 1930s and in some ways today 
is that, is that I think it's important for us to, to sort of educate people and to, and to have discussions about what they think America's role in the world is and what America's role in the world should be. And I think that's what the U.S. government realized after Pearl Harbor was that you, you have to try to engage with people and, and make sort of show them the, the importance that America has in the world. And in the, in the Cold War period, that's one of the reasons I think that isolationism actually disappears is because the U.S. government actually messages very effectively the importance of staying engaged with the world to prevent the spread of communism. And so this becomes sort of isolationism or isolationist sentiment declines in that period because um, of this sort of constant push of, hey, we have to stay engaged. Hey, we have to stay engaged. We have to we have to combat communism wherever it's found. And we could certainly have an interesting discussion about whether that was entirely necessary or whether how the Cold War was prosecuted in that sense. But, <laughs> but I think it's it is an interesting moment. And certainly it does. It does sort of help deal with that. So there certainly are interesting parallels there. Um, the, another exception to that instantly would be California. So California in this period has a lot of Nazi sympathizers in it. So that's that's another interesting uh, exception to the to the overall rule. Yeah, and and it's interesting because you know you say uh, uh, you know messaging America's engagement uh, with the world, and I I think a, a a perfectly fair way to put it, as I would and as I have throughout my career, is that U.S. imperialism becomes the dominant ideology, and as imperialism becomes the norm and really a consensus within the ruling class in the United States, the very notion of isolationism itself, as it was understood at this time, seems to become something of an anachronism. Yeah, and there's actually an interesting afterlife to isolationism. So I've, I've looked into this a little bit after actually finishing this book. But when the Vietnam War really begins heating up, there's an interesting dis discussion and actually fight that emerges between a lot of the former America firsters. Because, of course, these guys were isolationists during the 1930s, so you'd think that they would be opposed to the Vietnam War. Well, as it turns out, they're not. As it turns out, the vast majority of the former America Firsters fully support the Vietnam War. And so there's an interesting – I think you raise an interesting point that, that, that there is an ideological shift that takes place there. And so you see people who formerly didn't want America to be engaged in the world at all fully signing on to sending hundreds of thousands of men to die in Southeast Asia. And so there's an interesting shift that takes place there. Well, sure. Anti-communism becomes the religion of the far right uh, in a way that obviously um, when there is an active Nazi force, it's obviously sort of a different calculus. But anyway, I, I want to just ask you very quickly about what we're seeing internationally right now and how that relates to some of the research that you've done in the 1930s. Because, of course, what we're seeing in the United States is really only one aspect of a broader global fascist upsurge. The, the, the far right is really on the march in much of Europe at this point, uh, certainly uh, what we've seen recently in Brazil with the election of uh, Bolsonaro, and really a fascist uh, leader down in Latin America now, which of course calls to mind a very, very nasty and sordid uh, post-World War II history of Latin America. So we're seeing a global resurgence of this, of this fascism. And I guess I want to ask you, what does what lessons do we take from the 1930s that we can then apply in a global perspective in addressing what we're seeing around the world? Well, yeah, I think that's a really great and important question. And certainly the, the, the you know, the analogy to the boys in Brazil is, was the first one that came to mind for me when we saw this election unfolding. You're absolutely right. There's a, a fascinating and sordid post-war history in Latin America with, with some of this stuff. Um, you know, I, I think there's a couple of lessons. I think th there's very little doubt in my mind that the reason or one reason we're seeing this is because of the aftermath of the, of the Great Recession. Um, in most of these countries, 
while the stock market has recovered, that doesn't mean recovery for the man on the street. And so, you know, we can cite all sorts of data in this country talking about how wages haven't risen, how the plight of the average working man and woman hasn't really improved since then. Um, everything's been stagnant now for, for several decades, actually, even, even from before then. So I think that's, that's one of the primary reasons why we're seeing a resurgence of this. There is a feeling that the prior political class, in some ways, what remains of the prior political class, simply couldn't deal with the problem. And that's exactly what we saw in the 1930s. That's exactly why these far-right parties began coming to power, because the view was that democracy is broken, that democracy just doesn't have the political will, the system is too corrupt, it simply can't do those things. And so I think, you know, I, I don't think that we're heading for a third world war here. I don't think that there's necessarily these, these structural um, aspects in place for that to happen. Fortunately, Europe has pretty pretty demilitarized for, for exactly this scenario, right? I mean, this is why they demilitarized after World War II. Um, so I don't think we're heading for that necessarily. But I think we are heading for a time in which uh, we're going to have to very stridently make the case, as, 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 as anti-fascists, I should say, we have to stridently make the case for why fascism is wrong. We're going to have to point out where this ideology leads. We're going to have to point out um, the human costs of this. Uh, and unfortunately, in the 1930s, that was only done when there was huge amounts of death and destruction. And again, I don't think we're going to get to that necessarily, but I think it's important to begin discussing where this logic leads. Where, where these types of policies may go in the future. And, and that, I think, is, is the way to begin counter-messaging this stuff. Couldn't agree more, but one point that has to be made, and you know, the little the the, the commie in me will come out here, is that part of the reason part of the reason why we're, why there was effective anti-fascist action in the 1930s was because there was an organized socialist and communist left, one that was one that was organized not purely only around you know political parties. It was very much embedded in organized labor. It was very much embedded in a number of institutions in this country. Um, uh, including even in places like the upper Midwest, where socialism, the very concept of socialism, was not a taboo subject at all. And I mean, we can go into the populist movement in the 1890s and how that evolved into the early 20th century, but we probably don't have time for all of that. But fascism did not have a clear path to state power in the United States, nor did they have a clear path to street power in the United States. Because you had communists and anti-fascists who were willing to confront fascists in the streets and say that you cannot show your face, you cannot march through our streets. We saw that in London as well with Mosley and the, the, the fascist elements there, the, the Battle of Cable Street being the famous example of that. So that aspect of, of not just street battles, but street organizing, it does seem to be missing. I mean, we have protests, we have mobilizations, but I'm not sure we're really in a position right now to confront what it is that we're seeing rearing its ugly head. I think that's right. And I think, I think that maybe the most important organizational aspect that's missing that you just mentioned is actually the labor movement. I think the decline of unions in this country has, has set the stage for this in many ways. And that was one thing that I've been fearing for, for a while since I started doing this research, because, as you say, unions were the, one of the primary organizational vehicles opposing fascists quite actively in this period. Um, and we can go, uh, labor history is really fascinating in this regard, but um, that, that is one, one key aspect that's missing. I think you're going to see more of that. I mean, I think you're, you're going to see more and more sort of street protests. You're going to see counter-organization against that. But unfortunately, again, because labor unions have been um, so diminished in this country, we're not going to ever, I think, well, I mean, or foreseeably have at least that level of counter-organization, unfortunately. All right. We're just about out of time, but I did want to just kind of um, 
I did want to kind of put a put a bow on this if I could. Uh, what what I have written recently, um, and not to you know not to force people to go and read it, but you know it, the article that I wrote in in August. Which I've gotten a lot of feedback on, uh, which was which was titled uh, "Trumpism: The Real Danger of Donald Trump." And what I argue in that piece is that Donald Trump is, of course, a singularly uh, you know singular figure in, in in many ways. But what is developing around him, this movement that's congealing around him, this movement is going to live on well past the time that Donald Trump exits the political stage. And one can only imagine and shudder at the idea idea that there will come a there will come a time potentially in the not too distant future where another maybe better dressed more articulate more well more well rounded more palatable family oriented type of fascist emerges as a real leader and now with an actual kind of organizational element an ideology trumpism is ossifying into an ideology from my perspective and the danger that I think we're really facing is not so much Trump it's what Trumpism is going to evolve into I completely agree I think and this is something I actually I've been saying for uh, for a number of years now but I I think you know Trump himself I I think my analysis of Trump himself is that he doesn't fully understand in a lot of ways the forces he's unleashed Um, you know and one thing I talk about in the book is of course America first and I've been asked by a number of people do I think that Trump deliberately evoked Charles Lindbergh in, in choosing the America First slogan? I have no idea. Um, I kind of doubt it, though. I mean, I think that he chose a slogan that he thought was catchy and, um, you know, somebody on his staff approved it. I, I don't know whether Steve Bannon knew that that was the analogy that he was going for. And I have no idea whether that term was so resonant that it would have made any difference either way. But I think that's right, that we are seeing the ossification. And, and the thing that really troubles me about that within Trumpism is this tendency to disregard facts. And we're seeing this with these criticisms of supposed fake news. We're seeing this with the embrace, open embrace now of sort of disinformation. Um, and that's really troubling because when you have an ideology that is based fundamentally upon rejecting what everybody else sees as objective facts, you're creating a group of followers that will believe essentially anything. And this is something that we certainly see in the 1930s as well, where one of the key ways that you, you join the German-American boomer, you join the Silver Legion, these other radical groups, is you have to basically sign on and say, I'm not going to believe anybody other than, than the leader. These are always very hierarchical organizations. And so I think that's, that's the danger. I think, as you say, the danger is not necessarily with, with the president himself, but it's with what happens with this movement after, after he's gone. What happens with this movement, as you say, when a new leader emerges who's younger, better dressed, more politically savvy in a lot of ways, and they inherit this sort of movement that's already been conditioned to behave in a certain way. Exactly. And that's one of the it's one of the great fears that I have. And uh, we could probably go on for like seven more hours, Bradley, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. Again, the book listeners, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich supporters in the United States. Absolute must read. Holiday season is upon us. I didn't think I would ever live to say the phrase holiday season is upon us, but here we are. And I do recommend you get that book as a great gift. And, and, and frankly, anybody, anybody, you know, that needs to know this history. This is perhaps the best book for them. So I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Uh, Bradley Hart, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio for the great work and great research and this absolutely critical piece of uh, 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 historical research to, uh, you know, as a contribution to the discourse. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you again for the support. And uh, I, what else can I say? You guys are wonderful and I will speak to you real soon.